small part of me that's tempted to just simply say, enough said, sit down. But we uh, will be in Romans chapter 8, looking at uh, verses 18 through 39 this morning. It was in the 1930s that a physician named Antonio Moniz uh, was looking for a way to treat some of his patients who were highly agitated, psychotic patients. And so what he decided he would do is either through chemicals or through surgery, he would seek to destroy or remove as much of a person's uh, frontal lobe, what today we would call a lumbotomy. And afterwards, the initial results seemed somewhat impressive. Uh, those who were highly agitated were not as agitated after their frontal lobes were removed. And on standard IQ tests, they seemed to do just as well as they did before. But people who know, knew those who had had lumbotomies said in a highly scientific way, there's something different about them. And so doctors and scientists continued to, uh, research continued to explore to see if they could figure out what made them different. And among several other things, one of the things that they discovered was that those who had a severe impairment on their frontal lobe could not do anything that involved planning. If you gave them an IQ test, they'd do great on IQ tests, but you gave them a simple maze where they had to predict where they would go next, they couldn't do it. Uh, one patient was asked to uh, talk about what he's going to do tomorrow, and he said, I don't know. And he said, when you think about tomorrow, what do you think about? And he said, nothing. It's like a vast ocean of emptiness. The inability to think about tomorrow is something that I think most of us take for granted, but it's actually a gift God gives us. The ability to see and to know what's coming up in things in advance. So as we think about this gift of seeing into and being able to think about the future, we need to see it as a gift that God gives us, just much like if you're on a wilderness trek, you need a compass, something that will help guide you today to make right decisions. And so in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 39, what Paul is going to do is he is going to help use the future, God's ideal end, in a way to help guide us in how we ought to live in these present days. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And this statement is the thesis statement for the remainder of this chapter. And, and so in this section, we're going to kind of have two kind of main themes. And the first thing we're going to look at is to walk the pathway to glory, we must expect to walk through seasons of suffering. If you remember back to Romans chapter 8, uh, the first part of that, Paul begins, and over the next 16 verses, he moves slowly towards a crescendo. He, he moves towards a climax. He, he, he lifts us up into the mountains, and he has us feeling very, very optimistic about all of the new advantages that we have in Christ, because God gave his Son, and then he also gave his Spirit. So just as a reminder of some of those things that Paul builds to, there is now no condemnation. You are free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of God dwells in you. We are debtors, but not to the flesh. We are children of God. We have received a spirit of adoption. We are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. And the passage, it seems, keeps getting 
better and better. We feel like we're on an airplane that's getting higher and higher. And we wonder what are the heights to which God's going to lead us. And we anticipate maybe the next thing that Paul is going to say is what he will say in verse 37. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. But actually, that's not how this movement ends. It ends at the end of Romans chapter 8, verse 17, when Paul says, bringing us to this high, high, he then says something very sobering. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The end to which we are heading is summarized by the word glory. But what summarizes what we will experience in these present days? Suffering. If you look at Romans as a whole, there's these three important stages or phases of the Christian life. Uh, the first we recognize is this phase of justification. It's something that God has done to bring us into relationship with him. Romans 5.1 says, we are justified by faith. That's a past action, and we as Christians can confidently proclaim that that has been done and accomplished. We have been justified by God. And then from there, we are moved into this next stage of being sanctified. This sanctification process is being made holy. Romans 6 1 says that we are raised to walk in the newness of life. Romans 6 19 says we are to present our members as slaves to righteousness for the sake of sanctification. And so sanctification is something that is currently happening. So here we say we are being sanctified. And the third phase then is glorification. We will be glorified. It is something that is yet to come. Now, for anybody paying close attention, Romans 8.30 will talk about uh, glorification in the past tense. And I think what Paul's doing there is what he's done in other places. When God makes a promise, it is so certain, even if it remains in the future, you can speak, as it, speak of it as if it's already happened. But the context here is Paul saying, let's talk a little bit about glorification so that we can understand how we are to live in this stage and phase of our sanctification as we are made holy. And if you're like 99% of the population, you might wonder, why do we suffer on the road to glorification? Paul lets us know, combining what we find in Romans 8, in Romans 8, 1 through 17, we find out that there is much that has already happened. There's much that had already begun through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are things that we can claim that Jesus has already done and already accomplished through the cross. And yet we're going to find out here in this next session, there are things that are yet to come. That the promises of the cross are not all completely satisfied and fulfilled, that there is more on its way. So notice how Paul says it here in Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For creation was subject to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. So why is there suffering? There's suffering because there is some of the redeeming work of the cross that is not yet completed. And to show that, to illustrate that, Paul points to the creation. He says, you can look at the creation itself 
as an illustration of the fact of recognition that God's full domain and God's full rule has not yet been asserted on the earth. If you remember back in Romans 5, we've talked about these two different realms or these two different spheres. The, the one is the realm of Adam. Or said what, what rules and reigns in that realm is this triad of sin and death and law. But in chapter 6, through the waters of baptism, you can be transferred into this new realm. And in this new realm, there is no condemnation. We have been set free from the law of sin and death, and we have the Spirit. But the thing to notice about these two realms is they are not two geographically distinct realms. They're not two islands like you lived on this one island, and you left that other island behind, and now you live on a new island, unaffected by the behaviors of those on the old island. We all live on the same created world together. And so instead of these distinct categories, we recognize that when you live in a fallen world, and you live on a fallen world, and you live beside fallen people, you will experience the suffering of fallenness, even when you have already been brought into the realm and into the reign of Christ. And so Paul says in Romans 8, 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit growed inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There's two main ways to understand what this groaning is about in relationship to the Spirit. Some say we groan even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, groaning shouldn't be a part of the Christian experience. Or probably a better way to read it is we groan because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. There is this recognition that those of us who have the Spirit have tasted in a small, incomplete, insufficient way. We have tasted of the goodness of the glory of God. And we know what it's like to, to, to be under God's rule and God's reign. And yet while we taste the sweetness of the Spirit of God, guess what we also taste? The bitterness and the vileness of the world. And that's the experience we have as Christians who have the Spirit. We know the liberation to come. We know the good to come. And yet we groan because we still suffer in the meantime. And so Paul talks about our suffering in this present time. And what we realize is that as Christians, we are living in between two crucial events in human history. There is the event that has already happened, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And yet there is an event yet to come. That which is yet to come is the return of Christ when he will make all things submit to God's intended rule and purpose. You've probably heard this described as the already and the not yet. Most of us who are Westerners find it difficult to be able to say God's work has already happened and God's work has not yet happened. We are taught a certain form of logic that makes no room for paradoxes or opposing statements. If I say, I am weak and I am strong, you would say, that's a logical fallacy. You can be weak or you can be strong. And yet there's a recognition in Scripture. They're very comfortable with saying, we already have and we don't yet have certain things. Notice even in this text, and speaking of adoption, Paul has already said, you have received a spirit of adoption. Are we adopted? Paul wants to say, yes. And then what does Paul turn around to say? We groan inwardly while we wait for what? Adoption. So do we have adoption or don't we have adoption? And the answer is yes. We already have it and we don't yet have it. 
We live in the in-between times, waiting for the full restoration and reconciliation of all things. And for that reason, the pathway to glory, on the pathway to glory, we expect to walk through seasons of suffering. The second main theme we find in Romans 8, that God gives us what we need while we wait patiently for glorification. Notice what Romans 8, 24 through 25 says, For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And here's Paul's calling, his instruction, his imperative about how we are to live. In the in-between times, he says we are to live patiently, waiting. Because we recognize the thing that will make the world what it is to be isn't you, and it's not me. It's God. And so in the interim, we wait. We are much like creation. Creation itself, 19, is waiting with eager longing. And we wait holding on to a certain future. And I want to talk a little bit about the waiting process later, but I want to remind ourselves first what Paul says God gives us while we are waiting. The first thing that God gives us is a certain hope while we wait patiently. God gives the hope of glory. There's a couple of things that we need to be clear about in hope in Romans 8 and I think in other scriptures is that when we think of the word hope, we often think of, uh, of optimism or, or of this, this wishful thinking for something to happen. Hope in Scripture, I think, indicates and points to something more fixed and more certain. Maybe the best way we could say it was we could call it a certain hope. That this is not a if only might it be possible, I wish. This is a certain hope. And part of the reason is because when the Bible talks about hope, it's not always just talking about a subjective experience. Hope in the Bible is, is, is sometimes this objective thing. It's like a rock or a tree. It's a thing. Notice what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. He said that he subjected creation in hope. So at the very moment that God subjected creation, God embedded creation with the hope to come. What's that hope to come? Dakota, you shared that with us this morning, didn't you already? He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The hope is there. The hope seed has already been planted when creation was subjected. So notice what Paul will say. For in hope we were saved. That's not my hope. I'm not saved by my hope. That's the hope. The hope that God has made. The promise. The certainty. The assurance that God has given us that he will redeem and he will restore his creation. Since hope is something that exi exists just like any other object, the most reasonable response of that hope is to expect it and to wait with longing for God to give what he has promised to give. See, hope isn't just a blind faith where we're jumping off a cliff and saying, I hope something will happen. Hope is actually a very reasonable thing in light of what's already happened. Romans 8, 18 talked about the hope to be, uh, the glory to be revealed. What that language is saying, it's, it's here, you just can't see it. And then the cloth's going to be pulled off. You say, oh, there it is. It was here the whole time. That's the kind of hope we're talking about. It's the hope that's discussed in Romans 8, 31 through 39. We're going to look at just two of these verses. 
Paul says, then what are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So yes, while we wait for glory, you will encounter people who are against you. But they're against you in a way that compared to God, there is no possible way they can overcome or can defeat what God is doing. Is there ever a kind of a suffering that will lead to our destruction? Is there a suffering that will cause God to abandon us? And Paul says, no, we can hope in that with a certain hope. Well, why can we hope in it? Because he did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him also give us everything else? See, this is not blind faith. This is look in your rearview mirror, see what God has already done, and that's a guarantee of what God will do. If God has already done the, less, the greater thing, you can be certain he will do a lesser thing. And the greater thing that he's done here is what? He's given his son. That's the extent to which he's gone so that we could receive glorification so we can trust him to go to the extent that is necessary for us to have a certain hope of glory. What else does God give us while we wait patiently? God provides us with his spirit to help us. Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I highlighted the word helps there because it's actually only used twice in scripture. And you probably have heard the story of the first time it was used. Jesus went to the house of two sisters. Mary and Martha. You remember that story? And, and Martha goes to Jesus and says, Martha, tell her to what? Help me. It, it's this recognition. You get into times and situations and say, I'm trying to juggle all these things. I'm trying to do all these things. And I need some help. In that case, Jesus did not send Mary to go and help her, did he? But we get a helper. The Spirit of God is sent to help us in these days and in these times of suffering. Specifically, in these days of suffering, we don't always know what to pray for. But the Spirit acts as an intermediary in our hearts. The Spirit knows the mind of God. God knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit knows the will of God. And so we can entrust that our prayers are known to God. Our prayers are heard by God. So what else does God give us while we wait patiently? He gives us the promise that he is working all things for good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, one of the things that we need to be really clear about here is it's not that there are some things that are labeled bad and God rips that label off and he puts the label good on them. It's not what this passage is saying. It is not saying that there's nothing bad out there. In fact, this whole text is saying the opposite. Look, look at Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 35. Some of the things that we can expect, hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, those things are bad. What this passage is saying is God can take something good or something bad, and he can work it for the purpose of what? For the purpose of good. The things that Satan intends for evil, he can work for his good purposes. And here's the purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And I'm guessing you wish in three minutes I would resolve every tension in Christianity between foreknowledge and predestination, but we're not even going to touch that this morning because of time. But what I do want you to recognize, it begins with the word for. God works in the good for a very specific reason. Here's the good end to which God is working, and what is that? So that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good God's working towards. He's forming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So while we wait patiently, we know that God can and does use suffering for the good purpose of conforming us into the image of His Son. And when I think about what Paul's saying here, it makes me think of categories that a guy named Nassim Talib uses. He says that there are some things in the world that are fragile. Things in the world that are fragile, in order for them to become what they are, they need a harm-free environment. If something is fragile, if you drop it, it will break. If you crush it, it will shatter. If it's not protected, it will be devastated. We all know what, sh- what um, fragile things are. But Talib said there's also whatever is the opposite of what he calls anti-fragile. And anti-fragile things, they need an environment full of hardship and struggle and pressure in order to become what they're intended to be. For them to thrive, there must be struggle, there must be robustness, there must be strength, there must be resilience. One of the things that we could all agree is anti-fragile are your muscles. If you don't use your muscles, guess what happens? They deteriorate. Ever seen astronauts before they used to figure this out and do exercises, they get off and they can't walk because their muscles have not been used. And I think what Paul is suggesting in this scripture is that we as humans are anti-fragile. For us to be formed into the image of his son, there's going to be some suffering involved. There's going to be some hardship involved. There's going to be some pressure involved. In fact, isn't that exactly what the writer of Hebrews says of Jesus himself? Although he was a son, he learned obedience. And how did he learn it? He learned it through what he suffered. Because we are anti-fragile. We need pressure. We need resistance to grow. We are called to wait for the coming glory. And we know that there will be suffering. But in that suffering, God will be producing a robustness in us that would not have been there had we not gone through this pathway to glory. A few years ago, I was feeling a little overwhelmed by ministry. And so one of my mentors was in town, and I said, man, this is hard. This is exhausting. This is tough. You know what I expected? expect a little bit of, you know, coddling and come on over here and let's just snuggle and we'll make everything all better. Here's the response I got. Craig, what made you think ministry wasn't supposed to be hard? I mean, there's, there's nothing in ministry and there's nothing, by the way, in Christian life that says, hey, I'm going to make it easy. Doesn't Paul say the opposite? It's going to be hard. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be groaning. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be famine. There's going to be persecution. He's already told us what it's going to be like. So why are we surprised when suffering comes? Because God is using suffering for his good purpose. 
And maybe that low moment in my ministry is kind of like a low moment that Frodo experienced in the book, The Lord of the Rings. And he's talking to his mentor of sorts. Frodo complains, I wish it need not have happened in my time. There's this huge enemy, a huge battle. And Frodo says, man, I just wish I wasn't the one who was called to carry this burden. To which Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And isn't that what Paul's saying here? We're on the road to glory. But I'm going to let you know there's suffering on the road to glory. And we're waiting patiently. And what we need to decide is what we're going to do with the time God has given us. You will experience things in your life that you do that you wish would not have happened in your lifetime. And all we need to decide is what to do with the time. We live in a fallen world. And we live amongst fallen people. But God has given everything that is needed to sustain us until the great and glorious tomorrow. We find ourselves overwhelmed by weakness. God gives us the hope of glory. We find ourselves overwhelmed and God gives us his spirit to help. We find ourselves overwhelmed and God gives us the promise that everything works, works to the good end. And there's one last gift God gives us in the times of hardship. And that's the gift of scripture itself. And so I want to finish our sermon this morning by allowing Paul to give us this final gift for what we need to know in times of hardship. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the whole church said, Amen. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as Paul said his goodbye to the church in Corinth, I offer you these words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you have any kind of a need, I invite you to come uh, to the back. I'll be back there. Some of our elders will be back there. Uh, just come to the back while we stand and sing this next song. If there's anything you need, let's go and stand.